0: You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Good evening. Uh, My name is Trey. I am a church planning resident here at Mercy View. It's great to have a chance to share uh, from God's Word this evening. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and keep those open to where we just were in Acts chapter 1, verses 6-8. through We're going to spend a lot of time there this evening, and we're going to be a couple different places as well, but that's the main text we're going to unpack. Just to the right of the entrance of the church that I grew up in, was a big glass case on the wall. It was about 10 feet tall, 14 feet wide. And in the center of it was a massive map of the world. And dotted all across this map were a bunch of red pushpins with numbers on them. And they corresponded to these placards and infographics that surrounded the map inside the case. And inside these Graphics were photos of individuals, of couples, of families, and a number that showed where in the world they were. These were the men and women that the church that I grew up in supported around the world in the work of global missions. If you grew up in the church, you might be similar with, a, with a, some kind of feature like that. I, I saw a similar thing on the wall back on the way to the kids' area with names of folks and where. They were serving. I know for me, in the context that I grew up in, uh, these mission walls were in nearly every church. And and they were there to serve as this visual reminder of the fact that the church was supporting people around the world in the work of missions. And we were called to that. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. I grew up in a, a Pentecostal denomination, the world's largest Pentecostal denomination, and so the, the last few weeks as we went through this series on the Holy Spirit, it, it's been kind of familiar territory for me. And, and if, if you think about, I think most people when they think about the assemblies, when they think about Pentecostalism, the thing that comes to mind first are the things that we talked about the last few weeks, right? A big emphasis on the things like the manifestation gifts, things like tongues, things like prophecy, things like healing, In fact, those things are kind of built into the cake. They're baked into what it means to be a Pentecostal. The the statement of faith that my denomination had, had in there tongues. It had in there uh, divine healing. Those things are baked into what it means to be a Pentecostal. So it makes sense that when people think about that tradition, the first thing that comes to mind is that. But if you were to ask the men and women who founded that denomination A little bit over a hundred years ago in Hot Springs, Arkansas, what their purpose was. It would not have been to propagate the outworking of the gifts of the Spirit first and foremost. No, The number one thing on their mind would have been the fact that those things were only there so that the work of mission could be done. You see, the Assemblies of God was not primarily established as a tongues-talking organization. That mattered. But it wasn't the real aim. The real aim for the context I grew up in and the reason that wall sat prominently on the back wall of the foyer in the church I grew up was to remind us that it really didn't matter if we talked in tongues or if people were healed. What mattered is that the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed to all nations. That was the thing that was at the forefront. And for all the ways in which I may disagree with some of the outworking of the former tradition I grew up in, some of the theology and practice, I am forever grateful for those mission walls that I would see in the churches that I found myself in. I'm forever grateful for what they represented It was this reminder of what the main point of our text tonight is. That the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit was given primarily for the advance of the gospel in the world. The gifts of the Spirit are wonderful. When they're used rightly, we've seen this, they're edifying, they're encouraging. But they are not the main point of the Spirit's work. They are not given and empowered to be an end in and of themselves, but to a greater end, to the proclamation of the gospel in all the world. And so, this evening, as we wrap up our time in this series on the Holy Spirit, as we've spent the last five weeks looking at the gifts of the Spirit, it's appropriate that we turn our attention to the empowering work of the Spirit And what he empowers us to do, and what we see Jesus' departing words are in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And there's two things that I want us to see about the empowering work of the Holy Spirit tonight, and I think the text is pretty plain about these things. First, the Holy Spirit empowers Christian witness. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to bear faithful and bold witness to the work of Jesus Christ in the world. We need it. And the second thing that we need to see this evening is that the Holy Spirit empowers this witness. He empowers us to go, be that across the street or across town or across the globe. And so with that roadmap for the text, I want us to dive in. This is the first thing, the Holy Spirit empowers Christian witness. And so we're going to look at Acts 1, 6-8, and we're also going to take a look at a parallel passage in Luke chapter 24, verses 45-49. through 49. It's about 30 pages the other direction in your Bible, if you want to turn there. And just put a thumb there. You see, both these books are written by the same author. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. They're written to the same person, to this guy named Theophilus. And Acts is picking up where Luke leaves off. And so in Acts, we read what John read to us just a moment ago, and I want want us to look at that again. And we see in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so if you got your thumb there on Luke 24, let's look back there, starting in verse 45. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Notice the similarities. You're witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Even verses 6 and 7 and verses 45 and 46, they're mirrors of each other. In Acts, we see the disciples are confused about the nature of the kingdom. They're still thinking it's geopolitical. They're still thinking that what Jesus is getting ready to do is tell them to strap on the swords and ride into town and take back the kingdom for the people of God. And Jesus is trying to show them that that's not the point. And so I think when we read in Luke that Jesus opened their mind to understand the Scriptures, he's showing them, he's wanting them to see that the nature of the kingdom is spiritual. And so the work of the kingdom that they're to be carrying out, it's spiritual, not physical. There's this parallel that's going on. And so the disciples, they they go back to Jerusalem. Jesus ascends into heaven They make their way back, and they're waiting for the promise of the Father, for the one that John in his gospel called the Helper, for the Holy Spirit. And that's what they did. They went and they waited. And by the time we get over to Acts 2, it's been about 10 days. And you have 120 people who had seen Jesus ascend into heaven, who had heard him say, go and wait. The promise is coming. You're going to be clothed in power, and they're in this little room. In a house, and we read in Acts chapter 2 that they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What took place here in Acts 2, it's loud, it's disruptive, it spills out, from whatever house they're in. And because there's people in Jerusalem at this time for the feast, the, the, the feast of Pentecost, all from all over the Greco-Roman world, they heard what was happening. And we're told that they, they heard a bunch of uneducated, backwoods, Galilean fishermen proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own languages. And we're told that Peter gets up and he preaches the first Christian sermon And he proclaims the gospel. He proclaims exactly what Jesus said. He proclaimed repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And he gives an altar call and 3,000 people get saved. 120 to 3,000 right then. And this is the same group of people that 50 days earlier, as they're wondering if everything they had believed was a lie, are huddled in a house hoping the Romans aren't coming to knock so that they can execute them too. It's the same Peter who 53 days earlier was bold enough in the garden to take his sword and slice off a servant's ear, but when a little servant girl said, hey, weren't you with Jesus? He's like, no, it wasn't me, and he runs off. And something has happened to them. Something has changed. The Spirit of God had now been poured out on the people of God who trusted Jesus as the risen Savior, the risen Son of God. And what was the first thing that happened? Now It can be really easy to say that the first thing that happened was a bunch of people spoke in tongues. Which that did happen. That would be, I think, to flat out miss the point of what's taking place here in this passage. The first thing that happened wasn't really that. That's pretty superficial to the story. It's, It's actually even just pragmatic on God's part. Because they were speaking in tongues, but what did people hear? Like You had people from at least 15 different regions of the world with as many dialects, if not more, And they didn't just hear a bunch of people speaking in a bunch of different languages that no one could understand. It says that each of them heard, in his own language, these uneducated fishermen, carpenters, women, proclaiming the gospel. The most important thing that happened in that upper room that spilled out into the courtyard and onto the rooftop and into the street, it wasn't a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't floating flames. It wasn't tongues. It was 120 people clothed in power, bearing witness to the mighty works of God in Jesus Christ. This was the day that the Spirit was poured out on the church, so that the church could be poured out for the sake of the world. And it started in Jerusalem, and then it went back to 15 regions and cities around the Roman world, and it's made its way to us today. And so what does it have to do with you and me? What did it have to do with these 3,000 people that were saved that day? And I think that The first thing we see in our text, the the main thing that we see, is that these 120 people received the promise that God had said he was gonna send. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. We gotta see that Jesus didn't send, he didn't just send the Holy Spirit to the 12 apostles. He sent the Holy Spirit to everyone in the room that day. He sent the Spirit for everyone who had called on the name of Jesus, and he clothed them in power. And we continue to see that, that it's not just this initial push of the gospel out from Jerusalem that the power of the Holy Spirit was needed for. We can look over at Acts chapter 4 and see that as Peter and John are arrested and they're making their way back to the house, they all come together, they tell what has happened, and we read in verse 33 that everyone that was there was filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We can look at Peter's use of Joel too in his sermon where he quotes Joel and it says, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. The point is that the Spirit of God empowers every believer for bearing witness to the work of Jesus. That's you, that's me, and so how does the Holy Spirit empower us to bear witness? And I think he does it in two ways. The Spirit empowers us for bold proclamation of the gospel and for patient endurance and persecution. And it was that first thing. The Spirit empowers us for bold gospel proclamation. We see as the story in Acts continues to go on that when the gospel is preached, things tend to get a little hairy for the church. Just a couple chapters after Pentecost, I mentioned it a second ago, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are out and they're preaching the gospel and they heal a lame man. Everybody's wondering what's happening and they start preaching and the religious leaders come up and they're like, hey, we don't like what you're saying. They're like, we're going to listen to God, not to you. They debate. They're like, okay, well, we're not going to throw you in jail. They beat them for good measure and send them on their way. And they go back to the house, and they tell everyone what had happened. And everyone's like, oh, man, that's crazy. And they begin to pray with one another. The Holy Spirit comes, and they're all filled again with the power of the Spirit. And they continue to proclaim the gospel with boldness. We see Paul say on multiple occasions in his letters that the words that he preached were not with eloquence, not with human wisdom, but with power and the Holy Spirit. That's how the gospel goes forth. Bold proclamation of the gospel. That's why the Spirit not only comforts us, but empowers us. And so let me ask you, what does boldness look like for you? What does bear the gospel with all the world? Like are we meant to be standing in the blue dome with a megaphone preaching on the street? And I know some folks who would say emphatically, yes, you should go in a likely place, and maybe there is some real boldness in that. However, I think the most likely place that you and I are going to find ourselves in that's going to require some boldness to proclaim the gospel is in the moments where spiritual, spirit-empowered boldness has to overcome situational awkwardness like when you're sitting around the table at Thanksgiving with your family and your uncle happens to bring up some religion or something that gives you an opportunity to share the gospel, it's gonna be a little awkward. But do you have the boldness to step into that? I think it's going to take some boldness when you're with your coworkers who grew up in Oklahoma, who maybe grew up in the church and feel as if maybe they know the gospel, but you can tell by the way they live their lives in unrepentance and in flagrant sin that they may have heard the gospel, but they're inoculated to it. It's going to take some boldness to say, man, what you believe isn't the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus. Because they're going to think they already know. It may be an even more difficult situation you're going to find yourself in, and increasingly so in a city like Tulsa that's receiving people from all over the country and all over the world who may not have actually ever heard an accurate presentation of the gospel is a bunch of people who are really good people. And when you talk about repentance and forgiveness, they just don't think they have anything they need to be forgiven for. They're good. They do good. And it's gonna take boldness to speak the gospel in that kind of situation, in that kind of moment. And one last thing before we hit on the second way, I think the Spirit empowers us. Boldness doesn't give you a license to be a jerk. Okay, it probably shouldn't have to be said, but it does. Okay. You do not have a license because you are bold in the spirit to be a jerk. You can be bold without resorting to the kind of rhetoric that has filled our public discourse in recent years. You don't have to belittle, you don't have to name call. Now listen, I know the Apostle Paul was apt to mock folks, okay, I know that Jesus liked to flip some tables and you're not Paul and you're not Jesus. If it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, then maybe, just maybe, as we are seeking to, in boldness, proclaim the gospel, we should employ kindness ourselves. It's just a thought. And if you feel in yourself a bit of, hey, but you already mentioned, like, the fact that people think they're good, they might not need to hear this, and actually I got off my notes a second ago, and this point doesn't actually make sense. Don't be a jerk as you're sharing the gospel. Amen. <laughs> the second thing that we need to see is that the Spirit empowers our witness, and he empowers it in a way that lets us be patient in endurance and in persecution. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I think a lot of times when we talk about persecution, it, it really kind of zeroes in on this idea of, well, people have said mean things about us as Christians, and they don't really understand the gospel, and they throw out these memes that are just kind of ad hominem attacks that uh, don't really understand what it is they're attacking, and, and I see that. And, and there's a sense in which there is a kind of persecution that is pushing, sound doctrine that would push historic Christian belief that would push what it means to actually believe what Jesus had said kind of out of the public discourse I think that's legit I think that is is something that is real And, and I think that sometimes the way that we claim that's a little overblown but I think that that's something that we can experience and I think that as we do that the spirit gives us patience to endure and one author I read recently said that if if he was to compare the place the church finds itself in the West more broadly to any other time in history, it's not going to be the 1500s and the Reformation. It's not going to be the Middle Ages. It's going to be the second century, where the world was full of pluralism. It was a secular society that that really didn't understand what the gospel had to offer. And it was a time where Christians were being fed to lions in the games, beheaded and burned. I'm not saying that he was making an argument that we're kind of headed that direction, that that's really not the trajectory that we're going to, but as the culture becomes increasingly secularized, I think that genuine persecution is possible. The kind of things that we see overseas, the kind of things that still happen in the world. We're we're not going to be immune to such things. Potentially, Jesus does promise that that kind of stuff will come. And so we may or we may not see that. But what we do see in the Scripture is that though the Spirit empowers God's people to go through even the most awful forms of persecution with patient endurance. And I think one of the greatest examples of this is in the first century Christian martyr Stephen. Stephen. After being condemned for preaching the gospel as the Pharisees were gathering stones for his execution, we read in Acts seven fifty-five that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he knew what was coming. He knew that he was getting ready to be executed, and his eyes were fixed on Jesus. And so the point that I want to make here is that you're probably not in danger of being executed But as our culture increasingly calls good evil and evil good, your convictions for Jesus could probably cost you some things. Maybe it could cost you a job. It'll likely cost you some friendships. It'll probably cost you some relationships with family. And in those moments, the Spirit empowers us as believers to fix our eyes not on ourselves not on the things that we could lose, but on Jesus. Thanks be to God, his spirit empowers us to bear witness to what he's done through Jesus Christ. Through boldness in our proclamation and patient endurance. And so there's one more thing in our text we need to see this evening before we wrap things up, and that's this. Between Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, In Acts, there's four accounts of Jesus' final words before the ascension. And in every one of them, we see that the mission of the church is global in scope. And so the second thing we need to see from our text is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to go. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the plan. That's the mission. The good news of Jesus Christ spanning the globe from a tiny upper room with 120 people transformed by the sin-defeating work of Jesus and sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the church has been growing and the kingdom has been expanding from that day until now. And thank God Thank God that the gospel didn't stay in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Because today, some 6,700 miles away, you and I are worshiping the same Jesus that they saw ascend into heaven by the work of the same Holy Spirit who came and comforted and empowered them. And this evening, the job isn't finished. The mission isn't over And I'm sure that if you ask one of those 120 people from the upper room, and if they were here and they were to see us worshiping in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they would say, surely the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. But the work isn't finished. Around the globe, there are still more than 7,400 people groups that haven't been reached with the gospel. That's 3.2 billion individuals who are considered unreached. People in 2021 who have yet to hear that Jesus, the Son of God, God became man. He died for their sin. And he takes their shame. He's borne their griefs. 3.2 billion people who've never heard The Holy Spirit has been given to us to empower us to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not finished. In fact, I'm convinced that there are in this room men and women, couples, families who God may be calling to step into this work. To take your skill or your trade and go to a place in the world where the only Life, living, and sharing the gospel for a thousand miles is you. And maybe some of you, God will call, like the Campbells, to go into one of these cities around the world where millions of people from these unreached people groups are being forced to move and migrate to, and they need to hear the gospel. And there... You can bear spirit-empowered witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you. Are you willing to trust the Lord if he calls you out? Those are some maybes. But what I know this evening, without any doubt, with no ifs, ands, buts, or maybes, is that though you might not find yourself in a place that seems like the ends of the earth, you are in one right now. Like I said a moment ago, to those 120 people in the upper room, the ends of the earth is Tulsa. Although for us, it may feel a little bit more like Jerusalem. And here's the point. There are people in this city, in this county, in this state, who have not Heard, who have not believed, who do not trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. In fact, if pressed, I'm sure most would question whether or not they really need forgiveness at all. The Holy Spirit has empowered us, He's empowered you, He's empowered me to go and bear witness here in your office at Reese's, to the barista who serves you coffee every week and knows what you want before you even ask. He knows that, but does he know the hope that you have and the confidence that you have that all of life is placed in the hands of a good and loving God? You and I have been empowered to go to bear witness in Tulsa in all of Oklahoma, in our nation, until the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. As I bring this to a close tonight, it's, it's been a great 11 weeks digging into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is worthy of our honor and praise. He's worthy of our time in this series because he is God. It's vital for us to know The Spirit is at work in our lives to understand how he's gifted us to live together in unity and as a community. In the five weeks that we spent looking at the spiritual gifts that God has given and about how God has equipped the church and his saints for the work of life together and growth in grace, that's, that's vital. And it's also vital that we never lose sight of this reality that we've looked at this evening. That the Spirit comes not only to comfort, not only to convict, not only to sanctify, and to gift, He also comes to empower us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, whether that's across the street, a cubicle over, or in some unnamed closed country. Mission is not the work of the professional Christian. Mission is the work of every man and woman who calls on the name of Jesus. And so this evening, I want to leave you with a question, one that I hope gets stuck in the back of your mind and twirls around and won't let you sleep until you've answered it. Where and how has the Holy Spirit empowered you to bear witness to the wonderful news of Jesus Christ? Let's pray this evening.